This is Speak Out Socialists, a podcast produced by Speak Out Now. We are a revolutionary socialist group. Our website is speakoutsocialists.org. You can find us on Facebook at Speak Out Now or on Instagram and Twitter at Rev Socialists. These are the reports from Wednesday, October 7th. Trump's campaign goes viral. Trump tested positive for COVID-19 and was hospitalized for a few days. Over the next days, some of his political associates also tested positive. Some were hospitalized or self-quarantined. This included many who had recently attended a reception for his Supreme Court nominee with no social distancing and few masks. Others had been with him in the White House preparing for the debate, also probably with no social distancing and no masks. Even after he had first exhibited symptoms, Trump continued his meetings, exposing more people. His supporters and some of his staff followed his lead. After they had been exposed, they didn't quarantine, including Vice President Pence. Instead, many continued to work, usually unmasked, like Press Secretary Kayleigh McEnany, who, when she knew that when she had tested positive, met with reporters, only later announcing the fact. While in the hospital, Trump ordered that he be driven around the hospital so he could wave to his supporters, exposing hospital staff and Secret Service members. Upon his early release from the hospital, he walked up the steps to the White House, waved, and took off his mask. This was to be expected. Since Trump has shown a total disregard for basic scientific evidence about this virus, he has made his anti-scientific, anti-mask attitude a supposed, quote, show of strength and a political line in the sand. He has refused to wear a mask or social distance, holding large rallies with thousands of people and even large indoor meetings. He has prevented the CDC from carrying out its normal reporting of information and issuing scientifically-based recommendations. As a result, There have been confusing and often inaccurate recommendations from government officials, leaving people without a clear view of the nature and symptoms of the virus or what they should do. The impact of his views and his administration's policies or lack of policies have had deadly, tragic, and unnecessary consequences. In addition to the more than 210,000 deaths, nearly 7.5 million people in the U.S. have reported to have been infected. Many of them are reporting long-lasting negative effects of the illness, and the impact of the virus on the economy has left millions unemployed without sufficient food and fearing evictions. Trump's denial of the impact of the virus and claims of, quote, fake news have been aimed at turning the anger of people who have been laid off, had their small businesses closed, and are in a situation where they cannot work because their children are home and not in school against these who want to impose health restrictions to Sam's lives. Meanwhile, those he really represents, the billionaires, have been raking in their profits. 
Trump and others connected to him have encouraged people not to wear a mask as a stand for freedom and individual rights. Risking infecting people is a matter of personal choice for them. This is a denial of everything known about containing infectious diseases. But when Mr. No Mask Trump got sick, he got the best care available, a staff of how many doctors and nurses and other hospital staff? In addition, he was treated with the most advanced therapeutics available, remdesivir, dexamethasone, and the experimental REGNCOV2, which are not available to most people. Trump continues to say that people, quote, should not be afraid of COVID. The families and friends of the more than one million who have died worldwide do not agree. There is one reality for Trump and another for his supporters. One gets health care and another doesn't. One has been supported through the economic crisis and the other faces unemployment. One makes the decisions while the other does the work. And who benefits? certainly not Trump supporters. The combination of this virus and Trump's horrific performance have exposed the sick and deadly functioning of this capitalist system. Grand jury cover-up in the Breonna Taylor case. First, it was the cops. Breonna Taylor was murdered in her home by police in the middle of the night last March. Police had a warrant for someone who they claimed was dealing drugs out of Taylor's apartment. Taylor's boyfriend called 911 to report that someone was trying to break into the apartment and fired a warning shot at the door, which wounded a policeman. Police fired over 30 rounds, six of them killing Taylor. The shot cop was treated on the scene and rushed to the hospital. Taylor, bleeding on the floor, received no medical attention for 20 minutes, by which time she was dead. Police found no drugs or other contraband. Taylor's boyfriend had a permit for his gun. At the time cops broke into her apartment, another squad of police had already arrested the drug suspect at another location. City officials immediately began a cover-up of what actually happened. Five months later, it was the Attorney General. With protests making clear the issue wasn't going to go away, Kentucky's Attorney General, Daniel Cameron, convened a grand jury to investigate, hoping that would take the pressure off. The grand jury's decision not to charge any of the cops with murder or even manslaughter had the opposite effect, especially after one of the jurors went public with what actually happened during the grand jury proceedings. The juror said that Attorney General Cameron refused to allow the jury to hear testimony from a dozen of Breonna Taylor's neighbors saying that the police never announced themselves before starting to break down the door. The prosecutors also failed to inform the jury that the one witness who testified he heard the police announce themselves had said the opposite when he was first interviewed. Nor did the jury know that a Kentucky State Police investigation cast doubt on the reliability of this witness. The Kentucky State Police Laboratory was unable to confirm that the bullet wounding the Louisville officer actually came from inside the apartment. The judge who issued the no-knock warrant later told the press that she believed the officer had lied about the evidence used to justify the warrant. Lastly, the juror, 
revealed Attorney General Cameron had ordered the jury not to bring any murder or even manslaughter charges against the cops, saying in his view, Kentucky law automatically exonerated police since they said they were shooting in self-defense. Previously, the Attorney General had said it was up to the jury, not him to decide about charges after hearing all the evidence. Angry demonstrations have resumed, facing down police wielding billy clubs and firing tear gas. A Louisville state legislator marching with her college-age daughter was charged with felony riot when they and the other marchers refused to disperse. Demonstrators hope that the outrage over Taylor's murder and the cover-up will force the government to bring the cops to trial. What else is being covered up? A revealing backstory is starting to come out. Louisville police have been targeting selected poor black neighborhoods for intense drug sweeps and other kinds of concentrated policing in an effort to open them up for slum clearance and eventual redevelopment. It may turn out that Breonna Taylor was collateral damage in the very profitable process of Louisville's gentrification. Forced Sterilization of Immigrant Women Recently, a nurse who formerly worked at an Immigration Customs Enforcement Detention Center in Osceola, Georgia, alleged that hysterectomies were being performed on women without their proper consent. Hysterectomies are medical procedures that remove all or part of the uterus, effectively sterilizing women. The nurse at the Irwin County Detention Center described how many of the women thought that they were getting another procedure done and did not understand that they were getting hysterectomies. She described one gynecologist in particular who would sterilize every single woman that he saw. Sadly, this story of forced sterilization is not new to U.S. society. There is a long history of unwanted sterilizations being carried out against women, particularly immigrants, black people, native people, the poor, the incarcerated, and others seen as, quote, undesirables by people in power. The whistleblower also spoke out against the overall medical neglect, lack of care, terribly unsanitary conditions, and unsafe work practices in these facilities, especially in light of COVID-19. To make matters worse, the Trump administration has recently boasted about conducting a, quote, immigration enforcement blitz, particularly in sanctuary cities. ICE raids are expected to be ramped up across the country. For the Trump administration, this is a political maneuver leading up to the election. For millions of immigrants and their families, it represents terror. We must stand together against all of the attacks on immigrants. Virtual Learning Part 2, The Parents Remote learning is tough on students. In the context of a world in which parents are trying to hold on to jobs to make ends meet, it may even be tougher on parents. Unless a family is wealthy enough to afford safe daycare or tutoring, or is able to provide their own pod-style learning experience, this situation can be brutal. And it's taking a toll on parent mental and physical health. All parents are hurting, but most particularly working-class parents, and most especially working women. For essential workers who must leave the home to go to work, the options are dismal. Either they can't afford care or they can't get a spot on limited rosters of care that are subsidized, or in some communities even free. But free means nothing if the spots are gone 
and these spots are usually gone before you can say boo. Andrew Norrie of Rochester said, quote, it was like trying to buy tickets to a Prince concert, end quote. With a daughter in Rochester's public elementary schools, this fall, he wasn't able to get a spot for her in the essential worker child care program. And although some states and workplaces have offered subsidies, they often aren't big enough to make child care affordable. Some parents simply leave younger children at home, hoping that everything will be okay, while feeling guilty and worried. And while it would seem better to stay home with the kids, this has its own problems. If staying home requires job loss or paid leave, it means a loss of income. If parents are working from home while trying to oversee their children's education, this also causes suffering. Although men are doing more childcare and housework that, than they did in the past, they are still far from doing 50% of this work. The result is a huge toll on women. One mother working from home said, quote, We're all at home in a small space trying to make things work, like there were no more boundaries. End quote. She described moments when her three-and-a-half-year-old cried behind a locked door and couldn't understand how, quote, you're here, but you're not really available, end quote. A recent survey verified this problem. 54% of working parents feel guilty because they can't fully care for their children, while 43% feel guilty when they're caring for their families because they're not focusing on their work responsibilities. After caring for her children all day while her husband managed a McDonald's, one mother said, quote, I had a breaking moment where I had to lock myself in the bathroom and cry. It was just too much, end quote. These stories demonstrate just some of the challenges parents face while remote learning continues, even when they can make ends meet financially. Sending students back to school without the certainty that they'll be safe isn't the answer. But the fact is that our society distributes essential work unequally and compensates it horribly. While the rich are bathing in cash and resources with nannies, private assistants, private tutors, and pod teachers, the rest of us are forced to do far too much. COVID-19 is only aggravating problems that were already there. Some people work too many hours for too little pay, while others have no access to jobs or an education. And women still do a greater share of childcare and housework. Another future is possible and necessary. Plastic digesting enzymes. One of the major problems in the struggle against climate change is what to do with the 300 million tons of plastic waste and byproducts that are produced every year via the fossil fuel industry. We're told that we as consumers just need to recycle all the plastic we purchase. However, 91% of this plastic isn't or simply can't be recycled. There's no question that in order to stop new plastics from being produced, and to mitigate the effects of global climate change, we must end the fossil fuel industry. But we already live on a planet that's created 8.3 billion metric tons of plastic in the form of takeout containers, disposable packaging, and clothing made with polyester fibers. So what do we do with the plastic that's already been created? Scientists all around the world have been working on genetically engineering naturally found plastic-eating enzymes for a number of years. These are microscopic living organisms that eat plastic. In France, a recent study from the company Carbios 
show that in the span of 10 hours, a genetically engineered plastic-eating enzyme was able to break down 90% of one metric ton of plastic waste. In the United Kingdom, researchers at University of Portsmouth have optimized another enzyme to break down plastic waste six times faster than a previous enzyme that was genetically engineered in 2018. These results are really encouraging and show the level of ingenuity that humans can have when faced with a huge problem like plastic waste pollution. But what if, instead of different companies working separately from one another on different enzymes, they work together to develop an even better enzyme to tackle this waste problem? Without the considerations of profit-making and intellectual property rights, plastic-eating enzymes like these could be utilized all over the world, until the fossil fuel industry is successfully dismantled, innovations such as these could help us bridge the gap between a world ruled by profit and a world of our own making, a world that focuses on the health and well-being of the entire planet and all who live on it. Trump refuses to denounce white supremacists in the debate. The Proud Boys, a violent far-right group, has been celebrating a remark made by Donald Trump at the first presidential debate. When asked if he condemned, quote, white supremacists and militia groups, end quote, Trump repeatedly sidestepped the question, eventually stating, quote, Proud Boys, stand back and stand by. Somebody's got to do something about Antifa and the left, end quote. Trump redirected the question to talk about left-wing violence, even though research shows the alt-right is the one with a track record of murder. This should not come as a surprise. In 2017, after a protester was killed at a white nationalist rally organized by the Proud Boys, among others, Trump claimed there were, quote, very fine people on both sides, unquote. In 2019, he tweeted that four congresswomen of color should, quote, go back and help fix the totally broken and crime-infested places from which they came, end quote. After Jacob Blake was shot seven times in the back in Kenosha, Trump didn't even mention the shooting when visiting there. Instead, he condemned the protests that erupted against this police violence. The Crusader, a newspaper affiliated with the KKK, has even endorsed Trump. All this to say, Trump has a history of white supremacist and racist attitudes and behavior. This debate is just the latest episode. He has repeatedly legitimized hate groups like the Proud Boys, whether implicitly or otherwise. And this institutional support is further encouraging and motivating the attitudes of these groups. After the debate, the far right celebrated on social media and the Proud Boys unveiled a new logo featuring the phrase, quote, stand back and stand by. Who's to say that these extremist groups will do next and what they'll be allowed to get away with? It's clear the only way we can counter this growing right is by organizing against racism and all such forms of hate. The Supreme Court, Judicial Servants of the Ruling Class Following the death of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg on September 26th, Trump's nomination of a hard right-winger to fill the empty Supreme Court seat has become a political issue in the upcoming election. Trump has already appointed two justices to shift the Supreme Court further to the right. 
His current nominee, federal appeals court judge Amy Barrett, ruled last year against a woman's right to birth control health benefits if the employer claimed that paying for contraception went against their religious beliefs. Judge Barrett has also written that she doubts the constitutionality of the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare. Trump praised her views when nominating her, but most important to Trump is his hope that a strong right-wing Supreme Court will give him cover in his efforts to suppress the vote of the large portion of the population that hates him and all his despicable policies he stands for. In recent years, Supreme Court rulings have supported state laws making it harder for poor people, especially if they are black or Latinx, to vote. These rulings indicate that the court might well give Trump the help he needs to hold on to power in the aftermath of an election if there is a dispute about who won the majority of the votes. It is a mistake to rely on this court to protect us from a decision in favor of Trump, regardless of whether Barrett is on the bench. There is no doubt that the, that the strong right-wing majority on the Supreme Court weakens the possibility that it will act to slow or stop the attacks on our rights and standard of living. But throughout U.S. history, the Supreme Court has never been a reliable defender of the democratic rights we are supposed to have. Most of the time, the Supreme Court does little more than serve the interests of the elite. When the Supreme Court ruled in favor of civil rights, it was only in response to social movements happening in the country, movements which defied unjust laws and the courts that, that enforced them. The Supreme Court upheld the legality of slavery until it was abolished by the U.S. Civil War. In the 1858 Dred Scott case, the Supreme Court ruled against a slave suing for his freedom because the court would not, quote, deprive a slaveholder of his property, such as his slaves, end quote, and that African Americans were, quote, beings of an inferior order, unfit to associate with the white race, and had no rights which the white man was bound to respect, end quote. After the Civil War, when the ruling class in the South imposed policies to terrorize the former slave population, the Supreme Court ruled to protect these racist policies in 1896, leading to the Jim Crow laws. When it came to the rights of workers, the Supreme Court was almost always on the side of the corporations. During the battles of the working class for union rights, the Supreme Court was used by the corporations to block strikes and attack workers' organizations and to defend the ability of the bosses to combat workers' struggles with the police and the National Guard. In 1919, the Supreme Court was used to uphold the Alien and Sedition Act, which made it illegal to protest the government, and was used to target revolutionary activists across the country, breaking up meetings, destroying offices, imprisoning activists, and deporting many who were immigrants. When this law was used again during World War II to imprison Japanese Americans in concentration camps, the Supreme Court upheld the law then as well. The Exceptions That Prove the Rule There are a few exceptions when the Supreme Court ruled in favor of rights for the working class, African Americans, and women. But even in these cases, the Supreme Court was responding to the social movements of the time. During the Great Depression of the 1930s, there were massive working-class struggles throughout the country, often shutting down workplaces for multiple days, and sometimes even shutting down whole cities. 
Workers took on the police, the National Guard, and even the army in their struggles. In response to these struggles, the Roosevelt administration passed a series of laws known as the New Deal in order to give concessions to workers in an effort to curb their fights. These included legal protection when organizing a union, unemployment compensation, social security, and others. Even though the Supreme Court did strike down many parts of the New Deal, they calculated that it was too risky to strike all of them down. Similarly, in 1954, the Supreme Court ended legalized racial segregation in public schools in the case of Brown v. Board of Education. This decision was not made simply because the Supreme Court changed its mind. The Supreme Court made this decision only when a movement began to form when over one million African-American soldiers returned from World War II. But afterwards, the Supreme Court did nothing to enforce its decision in the South. It took the continued struggle of millions of African-Americans themselves all over the South and throughout this country to ultimately force an end to legal segregation. And in 1973, women won the right to choose to have an abortion. Before then, all abortions were illegal except in rare medical emergencies. Thousands of women died every year from abortions with inadequate medical care. Mostly this was the fate of poor women. Rich women could afford better services or to go to countries where abortion was illegal. It wasn't until the late 1960s that a movement for women's rights grew all over the country, many of whom were veterans of the civil rights movement. Demonstrations and campaigns spread across the U.S., and by 1973, 64% of Americans were convinced that abortion should be legal. The Supreme Court decided in the case of Roe v. Wade that abortion was a woman's right up until the last three months of pregnancy. But because the movement ended, the legal protections of the court's decision eventually began to be eroded and have been continuously under attack to this day. And in 2015, the Supreme Court ruled to uphold the right of gay people to get married. But even in this case, the court only came to this 5-4 to four decision after decades of social mobilization around this issue. Future struggles won't be in the Supreme Court. Capitalism is in a crisis that is only getting deeper and deeper. The judicial system, including the Supreme Court, will enforce laws like debt collection and eviction orders that help the bosses make us pay for their crisis their capitalist system has caused, upholding the interests of the banks and corporations over the interests of working people. The only people who will fight to defend the interests of the working class will be the working class itself. At this moment to protect our rights, as well as to make sure the vote of the population is respected regarding the future president, we need to be prepared to come out in mass by occupying the streets or by striking. That is always how we have curtailed the power of the rich and their courts in the past, and that's how we can do it today. Anniversary of the Tlateloco Massacre in Mexico City On October 2, 1968, a peaceful demonstration of nearly 15,000 people took place in Mexico City. As speeches wrapped up and people prepared to march, soldiers armed with heavy artillery and tanks moved in to trap and arrest the protesters. 
At that moment, snipers began firing into the crowd, sparking a shootout between them and the military units who were unaware of what was happening. Many demonstrators and civilians were caught in the crossfire. After the shooting ended, more than 300 people lay dead and over 1,300 were reportedly arrested. The Tlateloco massacre was a planned attack by the Mexican government. For months, hundreds of thousands of people had hit the streets to demand an end to the country's growing inequality, government corruption, and the lack of democracy. For nearly four decades, Mexico's Institutional Revolutionary Party, PRI, had ruled the country with an iron fist, suppressing all forms of freedom of speech, organization, and political activity not under its control. The government's economic policies over the years had also pushed the majority of the population into poverty, all while enriching Mexico's elite class. People wanted change. The protests began in early summer as Mexico was prepared to host the Olympic Games. The authorities were intent on giving the world the impression that Mexico was a progressive and prosperous nation. Millions of dollars were spent on staging the event. This outraged many people who believed those resources could instead have been invested into meeting the needs of the population. Inspired by movements occurring all over the world that year, many began to speak out for the first time. Led mostly by young students, protests were organized on university campuses and cities throughout the country. However, rather than addressing the protesters' concerns, the government responded with intense repression. Riot police and the military were sent in to occupy campuses and crush the demonstrations. The government saw the growing movement as a serious threat to its authority and did not hesitate to use violent force in stopping it. The attack at Tlateloco was unfortunately enough to finally end the movement. Afterwards, the authorities and media covered up the incident and denied any government involvement. But for those that participated, the experience had succeeded in breaking their fear and silence. This generation was changed forever. They gave rise to a new wave of activists who were determined to continue fighting for social and political change for decades to come. The state violence that was inflicted on Mexico's youth that year continues to this day. On September 26, 2014, 43 student activists who were on their way to Mexico City for the anniversary of the Tlateloco massacre were abducted by police and military forces. They were handed over to local drug cartels and never seen again. Later, charred remains of some of their bodies were found dumped on a riverbank. And just like in Tlateloco, nobody has been held accountable for the killings. It's struggles like these that remind us of what we are really up against, a system that will stop at nothing to defend the interests of the ruling class. It will take a global mass movement, led by ordinary people, to finally bring this system down to its knees. The students in Tlateloco rose up against exploitation and oppression, and it's up to all of us to continue that struggle by fighting for our own liberation today. Trump's tax evasion, a normal part of the system. The sordid details of Donald Trump's tax evasion are finally in full view and add to our understanding of what a self-serving and dishonest individual he is. But there's a larger point going mostly unmentioned in the larger news media. Trump's behavior is the norm among the 1%. 
All Trump and his family of con artists have done is make a spectacle of what the billionaires of our ruling class do every day. Manipulate state, national, and international tax laws to avoid paying anything beyond token taxes. Trump and other capitalists regularly write off, quote, losses years into the future, enabling them to claim no income for years at a time. They play family members as, quote, consultants, allowing them to avoid gift taxes. They buy properties that bring in revenue, yet are claimed as losses because they depreciate in value. We could go on. Yet most, if not all, of what Trump has done is completely legal. As one economic journalist said recently, quote, if you're a big enough family in real estate and you're paying income taxes, frankly, I'd tell you that you should sue your tax lawyer for malpractice, end quote. In other words, he and others in the 1% operate in a system rigged to let them maintain and grow their money without doing an ounce of work. Trump isn't the exception. He's the rule. And guess who helped the Trumps of the world rig the system? Politicians like Joe Biden, whose home state of Delaware is the base of many banking and credit card institutions, which have dominated state politics for decades and enriched themselves through lax or non-existent government regulation. Don't expect him to change the system when he is tightly connected to those same interests. Trump's tax behavior is certainly reprehensible. What's even more reprehensible is the system that makes creatures like the Trump family possible. And just getting rid of Trump and his offspring won't solve the problem unless we take aim at the system that created them. COVID-19 response, decreasing restrictions and increasing deaths. Last week, the U.S. hit another COVID-19 milestone as the number of official deaths from the virus hit 200,000, even though the actual number is probably much higher. This is the most deaths of any country in the world so far. To put things in perspective, 200,000 deaths is like having a 9-11 World Trade Center attack every single day since July 4th. And most health experts are warning that the number of deaths could still double by the end of the year. But dying from this virus is not the only risk. Many people who survive show signs of poor health even months later, including heart problems, breathing problems, lingering mental confusion, and severe fatigue. Yet now, after eight months of a known outbreak in the U.S., millions of infections, hundreds of thousands of hospitalizations and deaths, with no end in sight, there is still no nationwide response to limit the spread of the virus. In workplaces and stores across the country, protective masks are still not always enforced or even available. Most states and counties only impose minimal restrictions on businesses and schools reopening. As soon as the number of positive cases go down slightly, workplaces reopen, social gatherings resume, restrictions are lifted, and in only a few weeks, case numbers climb back up again. In Florida, once schools reopen, one month later the number of positive cases of children under 18 increased 26%. Now that the NFL season has restarted with practically no restrictions, teams are already having to suspend activity due to outbreaks. Similar to most other states, Governor Newsom in California laid out detailed guidelines for what businesses and services could reopen based on the number of daily cases in a particular county. There are four ratings, widespread, substantial, moderate, and minimal. They are determined by the number of daily new positive cases per 100,000 people. As the rating goes down to less severe, 
so do all the restrictions. But of course, as the restrictions decrease, soon the cases just go back up again. All this does is guarantee that the virus will continue to spread throughout the state and the country. Health experts are warning that as California counties reduce restrictions, we can expect cases and hospitalizations to almost double in about a month. In reality, the politicians and so-called leaders of this country, Democrats and Republicans, have given up on containing the spread of this virus. They are fully prepared to accept 400,000 or more deaths. In other words, they have no problem committing mass murder. The logic behind these incredibly weak restrictions is guided not by what is safe for workers and our families, but what is so-called, quote, good for the economy, for corporations and their profits. In fact, our lives have never mattered under their system, and this pandemic is making that even clearer each day. The California Wildfires, Mismanagement and Climate Change As of September 28th, Red flag warnings remain in place over much of Northern California due to gusty winds and dry heat. There are still 27 major wildfires raging, with two new ones erupting just yesterday. Since the beginning of the year, the state has seen more than 8,100 wildfires, burning over 3.75 million acres. In just the last month and a half, at least 29 people have died, and over 7,000 structures have been destroyed. Currently, more than 66,000 Californians are under evacuation orders because of wildfires. About 54,000 of them due to two latest fires, the Zog Fire and the Glass Fire. As of today, these two fires are 0% contained. Just as we thought we were getting fires under control, we were shown that there is no reprieve when heat waves and land mismanagement are the norm. Between 1982 and 1998, California's land agency burned about 30,000 acres a year to prevent uncontrolled wildfires. Between 1999 and 2017, that number dropped to 13,000 acres. Today, to restabilize the land for fire risk, California would need to burn a massive 20 million acres. So these fires are partly a result of neglect. Planning fires helps maintain the health of a forest and prevent wildfires. Without this important controlled burn, destructive wildfires are inevitable. Combine this mismanagement with the hotter and drier climate created by climate change, and you've got the worst fire season in California history, with the worst air quality in decades. And fire season hasn't even peaked yet. Add in one more factor, COVID, and it truly feels like we're living in an apocalyptic nightmare. Now going to evacuation centers means escaping fire risk, but also accepting the risk of COVID exposure. Plus, smoke, heat, and COVID have created a perfect storm of risk for those with underlying health conditions, putting more lives at risk. And the most angering part of all this? If preventative measures had been taken and true efforts made to combat climate change, we would not be in this situation today. The same politicians responsible for the pathetic response to COVID can also be blamed for the devastating impacts of these fires. People and our environment are clearly not a priority. The politicians have prioritized the profits of corporations above all else, neglecting programs that manage land or protect public health, and enriching the 1% that already gets rich off our backs. The politicians and their business friends have provided us protections and safety measures only when we fought for them, and the time is now to fight again. But this time, we can't let them decide what needs to be done. 
we need to decide for ourselves. Our website is speakoutsocialists.org. You can find us on Facebook at Speak Out Now or on Instagram and Twitter at Rev Socialists. Thanks for listening.